Yeah, we're doing church history for the, this, this round of Springbrook Seminars, uh, which Springbrook Seminars is just, if you, I think you all know what this is, but just kind of an opportunity for us to teach some things uh, that doesn't get as much pulpit time. You know, we, we try to preach books of the Bible uh, through our Sunday gatherings, and so there are certain things that are good to learn and good to know in the Christian life without necessarily having the opportunity to do that on a Sunday morning. So that's kind of what these are for, is to give some topic space. Um, rather than preaching topics constantly and trying to hit everything on Sundays, well, we do these on Thursdays at least a couple times a year. Uh, so we're going to do a block of church history part one um, for five weeks starting today and four more weeks after this that'll get us through a lot of time, like... 1400 years or so um, and then we'll do a couple weeks off and then we'll get into the second half of church history which will be 1500s reformation through um, kind of modern day we'll see how far we we get there um, but yeah so I we'll, we'll start with just the obvious question which is why should we study church history um, I think there's a, a lot of reasons to study church history but I, I didn't, I'm, a, I'm kind of a late bloomer when it comes to appreciating church history or history at all, actually. I, I probably, like most of you, are just like, eh, it's history, like who cares? Um, that, that was my perspective of, the church, of church history for a long time. Through undergrad, I didn't care. I did enough to pass the classes. And uh, seminary, I, I cared a little more, but still not that much. Uh, it's been more in the last few years that I've that I've really started to think about it and engage a little more with it. Um, but my perspective of church history was basically this: it was Jesus, disciples, Paul, yada yada yada, Martin Luther, yada yada yada, Billy Graham, and that that's basically how I looked at church history and how a lot of us look at church church history. I think, and in general, and in the yada yada yadas there's a lot of things that happen and are important and i think are helpful to the christian life and as we think about um what god has done through all these years and so one question i just want to address first at the beginning of this is the, the obvious question it god reveals himself clearly through his word and that and his word is all we need for life and godliness we believe that firmly here um but if that's true, why do we want to or need to or desire to study things that happen outside or, or outside of or beyond the scriptures? And I just want to answer that to begin with before we get into some of the content here. Um, so on one hand, we don't actually need to know church history to be faithful, fruitful followers of Jesus. I'm never going to advocate for that. You don't have to sit in this class to be a faithful fruitful follower of Jesus. We can be completely ignorant of everything that happened outside of the Bible and still uh, be solid believers. I, totally, totally true. I, I believe that firmly. But I do think that there are some very good, valid reasons that we should consider studying church history, even if we don't have to, uh, we, we get to. And, and here's just a few. I, I got five reasons on the front end here just to give you some thought. Uh, number one is church history is our history if we're Christians. If we belong to the church, it is our history. And uh, I think about it like this. If, if we're Americans, and we all are in this room, um, we would say probably that it's important to know our 
American history. I don't think anyone in this room or anyone that I know could, that I could pull out would be like, you know, we should never teach our children American history. Um, most people don't actually think that way. Uh, now, some people do, I'm sure. But most of us who are thoughtful and considering these issues are like, you know, history is important. Where we came from as a nation is important. Um, we should study that. And, and I think that some of the people who are the fiercest critics at times of church history are going to be the ones rah-rahing about American history. So, so like, how much more so, if, that, if it's important to know where we came from as a country, and I think that's, that's valuable in its, in its way, but how much more so if, we, if our primary identity is that of Christian, that we should know our Christian history. So again, we don't have to know our Christian history, just like we don't have to know American history to be citizens of America. But it may make us more engaged and interested and, and uh, thoughtful people. Second reason, uh, I think, for studying church history is that it helps us better understand our Bibles and avoid theological mistakes. So one of the things that church history has, has done in my life has helped me to appreciate the, the ways in which what we've come to appreciate about our, our theological convictions and our, our kind of our, our bent in our, in our way actually does come through historical movements in the church. Um, and we, we know that church, uh, that history is something that we should study so we don't repeat it, at least in the negative aspects. And I do think there's a danger in being completely ignorant of the things our Christian forefathers fought for, to stay true to the faith, to, to stay true to the teachings of the Bible, um, that if we're not aware of those things, at least on a general level, uh, we're going to be potentially falling into the wrong direction and embracing false doctrine. And throughout this class, we are going to talk through a number of things as we get, uh, not so much today, but in future classes, we'll, we'll get into a lot of the theological controversies that have uh, existed throughout the history of the church and how God has sovereignly directed his people and his church to believe uh, the biblical things when there was a real danger to not. Um, and so, so that's something that I think is valuable. Number three, uh, church history confirms what the Bible teaches about Jesus being Lord of all. And it does that by showing us how he has sovereignly worked through his people and the history of the world. And I think that's been one of the most helpful things for me in studying history in the last few years is just going, well, you know, God actually is uh, in charge of the world. And, and looking at the trajectory of human existence for the last at least 2,000 years uh, gives us a deeper appreciation of that. And uh, the, the other thing that church history helps us to, to know in that regard is that we're not the first people who have ever lived. We're not the first people who have gone through hard things. We're not the first people to wrestle with controversy. And though we are people that struggle and go through trials and wrestle with controversy in our day, church history gives us the perspective to know we've, we've actually got a lot of people we can look, at, look back at and go, okay, here's how they handled this. Maybe we can handle it similarly. And we can learn from them. So that's that. And then number four is that church history gives us reason for optimism. Jesus is building his church as he promised, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And church history demonstrates that beautifully. Um, we're, through studying what Jesus has done through the history of the church from the end of the, the New Testament to today, 
we can look back and go, wow, God has given us such a lineage of, of faith in the church. And that can give us and bolster hope and optimism for the days in which we live. If God's faithful then, he can be faithful today and he will be faithful today. So I think that's another important component. And then last but not least here for the why, and I'm sure there's many more reasons we could throw into this, but um, the Bible itself tells us repeatedly to remember what God has done in the past so that we will worship him. Uh, This is a call in our lives. Now, of course, predominantly, we remember what God has done in biblical history, right? In the the scriptures that that we love and believe, uh, great great majority of it is history. Even as it was written, it was history, being, being written as history. You've got the, the five books of Moses that were written after the fact, right? You've got the, the books of, um, well, you've got Ruth and First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, right? Ezra, Nehemiah, all of these books and many more were written explicitly to be history of the Old Testament people. And, and you also have the book of Acts, you have the Gospels, these were also writings that were done after the fact and recorded for us as history. The history of the life of Christ, the history of the church in the early years, and that's a biblical thing. So the reason that God records so much history in our Bibles, and I think the reason why we can go looking at history outside of the Bible in, in addition to that, is so that we worship the Lord Jesus and, thank, and be thankful for what he's done. Psalm forty-five, seventeen, writes uh, that the psalmist writes, "I will cause your name, the Lord's name, to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever." That that one verse is being written to tell us that God's name will be remembered in all generations. That's through the landscape of human history. And, that, and because of that, because God's name is remembered throughout all generations, nations will praise him forever and ever. And so the goal of church history is the same goal as anything else as Christians. It's to worship the Lord Jesus and to help us do that by growing in an appreciation for, for what he's done. Again, I'll, I'll repeat it again because it's important. We don't have to know these things to be faithful, godly people. Uh, but I think it will help us to appreciate what God has done in the world, uh, and particularly in his church after the closing of the New Testament. Okay, so what are we going to cover? Let's just go real quickly. So just this will be the one, only time this, this class or this course that we'll talk about this. So I just want to do some introduction stuff. Um, we're going to tackle um, 2,000 years, roughly, of history so we're not going to talk about everything. We obviously can't talk about everything. Um, we don't know everything, in fact, that happened in that span of 2,000 years. So what we're going to focus on is the major things, the turning points, the decisive moments in history. Um, we're going to look at the big things that happen. And that's typically what history is anyways, the study, the discipline of of history, which I am not a historian. I am not trained in that regard, so take everything I say with a grain of salt here. But um, I am uh, just a guy who loves history and, and is, uh, has been benefited from it. So, um, but I, but I'm, I'm utilizing a, a number of books. I've got them kind of up here if you want to 
to want to look at them at some point, but I, the, the story of Christianity by Justo Gonzalez, uh, this is a two-volume set, so this is for the first half, and he's got a second book for the second half. Uh, that's one I've really appreciated. This book called Turning Points by Mark Knoll, uh, tremendous book, kind of de deals with the big moments. Um, and so those are two of the kind of broad books we're looking at. And then the more specific books for tonight for the first section here is uh, Eusebius, who we'll talk about tonight. Uh, he wrote The History of the Church, which records basically the first 300 years of church history from the closing of Acts to, uh, to Constantine. And then this book I read during the pandemic, which I thought was so helpful for me. It's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Uh, and this guy is a Mennonite, of all things, which is kind of cool. But he wrote a whole book on the first 300 or so years of the church as well. So those are good books. There's many others. Uh, there's The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark, uh, which I'll talk about a little bit tonight too. That's another great one that covers kind of the first 300 years. But that's basically what we're going to do um, in two parts here. We're taking the first five weeks to cover 80, roughly 70. We'll start a little bit before 70 tonight. And then we'll get to the late 1400s, kind of right before the Reformation. And then we'll take a pause, like I said, and we'll start in the 1500s, Reformation, Martin Luther, that good stuff in the next session and go from there. But today, we're going to take the first 300 years of Christian history, what we're calling the early church, the early church period. Uh, and so that's what we're going to walk through tonight, and I hope that it's helpful for you. Um, but just broadly speaking, what we're going to see tonight is uh, that the main things that were happening in the early church period were two things. The expansion of the Christian community throughout the Roman Empire. Okay, So there's a lot of growth in the church in the 300 years uh, leading up to um, Constantine becoming emperor. But that's also mixed with some periods of incredible persecution in the church. And I think that those are the, the primary hallmarks of the early church, of early Christianity. It is expansive growth and deep persecution simultaneously. And I think that that's really fascinating and just in and of itself that those two things can go hand in hand, um, which we'll, we'll talk a bit about tonight. But I, I want to basically just walk us through like, what has happened in, in those first few hundred years? And we'll start with this, the first conflicts with the state. Because most of the persecution that happens in the early centuries is from the state, the Roman Empire, the official, the government. Okay? And so the, there, are, there are very early on conflicts with the state. We see it actually in the book of Acts, which we're walking through as a church right now. Um, and you see that throughout the book of Acts that there's conflict with the Jewish leaders uh, in the early parts of Acts and then you see Paul and Peter and James and John and all these guys are starting to have conflicts with those in authority and that doesn't change once you finish the book of Acts but um, being that the book of Acts is our primary biblical source for church history it takes us up to about the year 63 Roughly, It's about a 30-year span from the beginning of Acts to the end 
uh, starts in about 8033 roughly, gets us to about 8063. And once we get beyond that, uh, the sources of information are uh, few and far between. Um, some can be suspect. Um, you know, you're talking about a long time ago. So there's not necessarily a ton of sources to tell us what was going on in those days, but there are a few. Um, you have some histories like Josephus's history of the Jewish wars. Um, he, he recorded primarily the history of the Jewish-Roman wars, um, and he was a Jew who uh, kind of defected to Rome, and so he's kind of got an interesting story himself, but he wrote a history of the war that Rome, that Rome brought upon the Jewish nation in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, so that's one source that we have some information from. And we also have Eusebius, which I, I shared his book here at the beginning. Uh, he was an early Christian historian. Uh, he basically worked um, side by side with Constantine. So depending on how we view Constantine and the legitimacy of that, we can maybe trust Eusebius or not. But this is these are the sources we have, so we kind of have to go with what we've got. And... Um, and the first thing that we'll talk about in, in the time between uh, 63 and 300, the first thing we need to address is the death of the apostles. That starts to happen in the book of Acts. Um, James, we see, is, um, is martyred by Herod. Uh, we're going to get into that in chapter 12. In just a couple Sundays, we'll look at the death of James um, in the book of Acts. <clears throat> but the book of Acts does not actually record for us the death of Peter or Paul um, or John or, or any of that, because all, all of that happened after the closing of the book of Acts. If Acts closes around 63, um, Paul and Peter were killed around AD 68, so about five years after the last chapter of Acts. Uh, and they were killed by Emperor Nero. He was the, the emperor on the throne at that time. And you probably know that Nero was psychotic. Uh, you probably know enough about that just from learning things and picking things up over the years. Nero was a crazy person, I think. Um, and, you know, I, again, I'm not a psychologist, so who knows why he was the way he was, but he did some pretty awful things. Um, but according to church historian Eusebius here, he was born, just as a little time frame here, Eusebius was born in 265, and he died about 339. So he lived, he lived a long time ago. Um, but he's recording here for us that Peter and Paul were killed, according to him, uh, by order of Emperor Nero on the same day, actually. This was something I didn't really know, or I don't even know if it's true, but this is what we got, so we're going with it. Uh, but Paul was, was killed by beheading. Um, which was his privilege because he was a Roman citizen. So, you know, the one thing he got was a quick death. Um, and then Peter was killed by crucifixion. Tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down uh, by his own request because he didn't want to die in the same way as Jesus. But, um, again, these are church traditions and, and things that have kind of been passed down by word of mouth. So it's hard to know for sure the accuracy of all that. But how Eusebius defends his view that Peter and Paul were killed on the same day is by pulling out a letter that was written by a guy named Dionysius, Dionysius of Corinth, who was a, he was a bishop in Corinth. And um, 
Eusebius says that, that they were both martyred at the same time. Uh, Bishop Dionysius of Corinth informs us in a letter written to the Romans. And here's what this, this bishop says. In this way, by your impressive admonition, you have bound together all that has grown from the seed which Peter and Paul sowed in Romans and Corinthians alike. For both of them sowed in our Corinth and taught us jointly. And in Italy too, they taught jointly in the same city and were martyred at the same time. So that's the basis for why we think Peter and Paul were killed on the same day, because this guy says so. And so again, we have to ask, is that true? I don't know. But that's what we give. We don't have any other sources to tell us otherwise. So we'll assume it's true. Uh, either way, they are both killed right around the same time period, right around the, uh, the time that Nero is on the throne. Uh, Emperor Nero is also most famous for setting fire to Rome. Uh, he sets fire to the city and blames it on the Christians as a way to make the population favor him. So basically Nero is crazy and the people in Rome are getting distrusting of him. And so he has, like all sane people do, this great plan to burn down the city. And uh, he burns the city and then says, well, it wasn't me, it was the Christians. And basically he's trying to create a, a common enemy that isn't him. And so he's doing that. And we actually know this from a Roman historian who was not a Christian. He was a pagan. Uh, but his name is, I think, Tacitus is how you say his name. He tells us the story of, of how, um, how this happened. He, he writes, in spite of every human effort of the emperor's largesse, which is giving gifts or trying to bribe the gods, and of the sacrifices made to the gods, nothing sufficed to allay suspicion that the fire had been ordered by Nero. Therefore, in order to destroy this rumor, Nero blamed the Christians, who are hated for their abominations and punished them with refined cruelty. He goes on to say, before killing Christians, Nero used to uh, used them rather uh, to amuse the people. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illumine, illuminate, meaning the city. And Nero opened his own gardens for these shows. And in the circus, he himself became a spectacle. All this aroused the mercy of the people, even against these culprits, referring to the Christians, who deserved an exemplary punishment. For it was clear that they were not being destroyed for the common good, but rather to satisfy the cruelty of one person. He's referring to Nero there. So Tacitus here, who is a non-Christian pagan historian of, of the Roman world at that time, clearly has no love for Christians. He's not defending Christians. He thinks that they're terrible and awful and all these things. But he indicates for us that the reason for the persecution or the, the, the things that Nero was doing was not justice because of something they actually did, but at the whim of this crazy emperor. And the result of that is that the people of Rome started feeling bad for the Christians because they're looking at this and they can see through the whole ruse. And uh, that did not make Nero more popular. It made him uh, less so. And so... Eventually, Nero uh, dies, um, but around that time, starting about 68, the, the tensions between Rome and Jerusalem were starting to reach a boiling point. So Nero di dies, he's replaced by Vespasian, 
Um, and Vespasian was basically the, the general who was in charge of the Roman wars. He's, he's in Jerusalem. He's getting ready to sack the city of Jerusalem because there's, there's all these political tensions between the Jews revolting and not wanting to pay their taxes and doing all these things. And so Vespasian is, Passian is there. Well, Nero dies. He gets called back to Rome because he's the kind of heir apparent. And uh, he appoints his son Titus to lead the army that then destroys the city of Jerusalem along with the Jewish temple. So right around this time, all of this is happening. Peter and Paul are, are murdered not long before this. Uh, a few years later, the whole city of Jerusalem is really completely destroyed. Uh, the temple is completely destroyed. And the Romans just absolutely uh, decimate this. Most of the information about this comes from Josephus. Um, he, he talks about how Jerusalem was sacked and most of the population was killed. If they weren't killed, they were dispersed. Um, he claims that 1.1 million people were killed during the siege, most of which were Jewish. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a little questionable whether his, his death tolls are accurate or maybe an exaggeration. Because uh, according to the best information we have, about a million people lived in Israel at that time. Um, so it's not likely that 1.1 million people were killed in this fight. But it may have seemed like that to him because it was utter destruction. Um, and so obviously many people died. Many people were displaced. About 97,000 people were captured and enslaved during this time. Uh, those who could escape got got out, and they fled to the areas around the Mediterranean Sea. So the Jewish people are under great persecution as well. Um, many of them uh, were killed, or if they weren't killed by the army, they were starved if they remained in the city because there was a famine that happened in the city because the Romans prevented food from entering. It was a it was a really awful time, clearly. Um, but what the, the result of that is that A.D. 70 is the destruction of the Jewish temple. That's, that's kind of the main thing that happens in, the, in that early part of the, uh, the first century. And it's happening, I, I think, partly by God's intention. Jesus does predict this, or doesn't, I shouldn't say predict as if he's guessing, but he does prepare people for this. He talks about the de- destruction of the temple uh, in his teachings. And I do think that that, while awful and a lot of people died in the process is what God used to actually do away with the sacrificial system. Um, without a temple, there's no sacrificial system. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrifices. So there's no need for a temple in that way. And I think that there, there's much of Christianity and Judaism that were sort of tied together during this period of time because most of the Christians were Jewish or at least a lot of them were at this point. And so I think the, the break from Jerusalem forces the Christians to kind of strike out on their own and, and recognize that they don't need to be continuing to, to prop up this uh, Jewish religious system uh, anymore because Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Um, so during this time, uh, there was a lot of emperor turnover it was a pretty tumultuous period in history. Uh, Vespasian dies, and then Titus 
His son becomes the emperor, but he's very quickly replaced. Uh, he's killed and replaced by Domitian. And um, after the temple was destroyed, Domitian decides that all the Jews who are still uh, around and spread out around the empire should send him money instead of the money that they would have sent to Jerusalem. So in Domitian's mind, he's going, well, there's no temple to pay taxes to now. So just send all that money to me. Um, Obviously, the Jewish people didn't like that. And most of them refused to send money. Uh, The money that they would have sent to the temple, they weren't going to send to the Romans. That was a bridge too far for most of them. So what that does is it creates this persecution of the Jewish people. But because Judaism and Christianity at this point were really tied together, at least in the Romans' minds, they saw it as the same thing. They saw Christianity as a basically a, a, a denomination off of, of Judaism. They didn't get the nuance of the differences. And so they just kind of tied all of these people together and began to take out anger on Jews and Christians alike. So Domitian begins to really ramp up the persecution around the empire towards both Jews and Christians. It was during this time, during Domitian's reign, that the Apostle John was exiled on the island of Patmos, um, which is where he wrote the book of Revelation. And um, he speaks in Revelation of Rome as the great prostitute, drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Um, There are... um, I think legitimate views uh, on the book of Revelation that, that at least some of it is uh, talking to the, the current church, the church of that day, as much as it prepares us for future things, it also addresses the, the struggles of the, early, of the early church as well. And there's, especially in the middle portions of Revelation, uh, a lot of kind of language surrounding uh, the, the persecution of the saints. And I think a lot of that was, was born out of this period in Domitian's reign. So where we go from there, uh, John is exiled. They had attempted, according to church tradition, they had attempted to kill him by boiling him in in oil. Um, He didn't die. And so they were like, well, we'll send you to this island and imprison you there. And so that's where he's at. And John eventually, I do believe, gets off of Patmos and he lives out his days uh, on earth without being killed by the Romans, as far as we we know. But during all of this, uh, as this Jewish and Christian persecution began, Domitian's reign was coming to an end. So he gets murdered in his palace. They all all kind of do this. And so the Roman Senate at that point in time decrees that the name of Domitian should be erased from every inscription uh, so that there would be no memory of him. Well, Okay, obviously that didn't work because we, we do know he existed and we're talking about him right now. But uh, as for Christians at that time, nobody really seemed to take notice of them. And so there was a few years of relative peace for the Christian church. So, that's, so basically when things get a little chaotic in Rome, anytime it gets a little chaotic, we're going to see this pattern throughout this, this uh, lesson today. Things kind of ramp up in persecution. Then things get sort of wild in, in Rome and the government doesn't have the time to deal with Christians, so they just kind of leave them, leave them be. We're going to see that happen again, again and again here. But let's move into the second century 
uh, and and look at how things continue to go uh, go badly in many ways for the Christians. So we'll fast forward to Marcus Aurelius, who became uh, emperor in 161. Um, I don't know, you've probably heard of Marcus Aurelius if you've ever watched the movie Gladiator. He was the thumbs up, thumbs down guy. Um, Marcus Aurelius was actually one of the more enlightened minds of the time that he lived. And he wasn't, he didn't have the same sensibilities as Nero or Domitian, who were just like power-hungry, glory-hungry people. On the contrary, he actually appears to be a pretty refined man. Um, He actually seems kind of modern and Western in a lot of ways to our ears. Um, And we know that because he wrote, he basically wrote a diary called, that we call the Meditations. Um, It's still in print today. You can buy a copy of it. It's translated into English and all this. But um, in Meditations, we get a little bit of an insight into how he thought. And, And he was not writing it for the outside world. He was writing it for himself and just kind of talking to himself through these these uh, journal entries um, and he actually expresses some ideals in there that are um, that that kind of give us an insight into how he tried to rule a vast empire and they actually sound very modern as we read them so here's a, just a little snippet uh, he writes think constantly again he's just talking to himself but he says think constantly both as a Roman and as a man to do the task before you with perfect and simple dignity and with kindness, freedom, and justice. So think about our own world today. <laughs> kindness, freedom, and justice are probably the three virtues that, are, that are the Western world values more than anything else. Right? And, and we all may have different definitions of what those three things are, but but those are the things that we hear those, the, the bell, you know, be kind is constantly rung and, you know, we need to be, have freedom and that's great and all this is good. So this is being written in the, the hundreds, like not the thousands, uh, which is kind of fascinating. All right. He also goes on to say, try to forget everything else and you will be able to do so if you undertake every action in your life as if it were the last. Leaving aside all negligence and the opposition of passion to the dictates of reason and leaving aside also all hypocrisy, egotism, and rebelliousness against your own lot. So that sounds like it could have been written like yesterday. Uh, It's really fascinating. Um, And so under an emperor like this, who thinks like this, who believes these things theoretically, we'd we'd be tempted to think that the the Christians are in for a great season, but uh, not so. as enlightened as he may have been, at least in his heart, he was still a man of his time. Uh, Marcus Aurelius was superstitious. He sought the advice of seers. Seers are, are these people who supposedly had a connection to the gods and could tell him what the gods wanted for him. He was still very unmodern in many ways. And he would make a sacrifice to the Roman gods before making any significant decision. So while... while uh, Marcus Aurelius was modern in some sense. He was also very pagan in another sense. And so during his reign, there seemed to be this endless string of problems in the empire. Invasions, floods, epidemics, and other disasters. This was a very difficult time for for people living 
in Rome, there were, in the Roman Empire in general, tons of problems. So soon, like all people do, we try to find reasons for things. And that's, this is the hallmark of being a human being. We try to figure out why things are happening. And the reason that the, the people around Marcus Aurelius came up with for why these invasions, floods, epidemics, and diseases and disasters came about, came about was that it was the Christians. They did this. They've brought the wrath of the gods down upon this empire. And while we do not know, and there's no way for us to know, if the emperor believed this, he kind of green-lighted it and was like, all right, well, if, if that's what's, what's what, then let's persecute the Christians and maybe we'll appease the gods. So that leads to another onslaught of persecution because now the Christians are being blamed for all these problems that are obviously not their fault, um, but a superstitious world and a world in which you know, there was a whole polytheism thing going on. Many, many gods, they had to come up with some reason and the Christians were an easy target. So Marcus Aurelius uh, ends up dying in 180 and he was su- succeeded by uh, Commodius, I think is how you say that. He largely just ignored the Christians. He didn't really persecute them because he had bigger fish to fry, like he had to fight a civil war. That was kind of a big deal. So not really having time on his, you know, in his uh, day to deal with the Christians, he kind of ignored them. So there was a good chunk of 13 years or so where the Christians didn't really have much issue. Uh, but then in 193, Severus becomes the emperor, and he just kind of gets back into the, the same old routine of persecuting Christians. So to, to tie all that together, in the second century, um, Christians were in a tough spot, right? They, they weren't being constantly persecuted. There were waves of peace for the church, but, and sometimes they were persecuted in some parts of the empire, sometimes in other, not in other parts. It was a big, vast empire from the British Isles to kind of what is now more or less, you know, the Middle East and, and beyond that, and just a huge amount of land and tons and tons of, of people. So some places had hotter issues with the, with the um, Christians and others, but inevitably uh, Christians are persecuted quite a bit. And, and it continues that way into the third century where the, the main thing that happens in the third century is what we would call the great persecution. So there's a, there's a moment in which really intense persecution uh, starts up. And there's, so there's this final wave uh, of, from the first three centuries. It's now called the great persecution. Um, and Diocletian is the emperor now. And According to sources we have, his wife and daughter were apparently Christians, but Diocletian allows himself to be persuaded by his junior emperor, his vice president, more or less in our language, uh, to lash out against the Christians specifically. And he was stoking fear that the Christians uh, who were in the military might abandon their duties. And so Gallerus uh, convinces Diocletian to have all the Christians removed from their military positions. And then later on in 303, which is a little bit beyond uh, what we're going to look at here, um, it, it, it basically expands to the whole removal of Christians from all upper positions in the empire. So remember, the church is expanding and it's growing 
while we're focusing primarily on the persecution right now, the church is also booming and people are coming to faith left and right, including people in high positions. The emperor's wife and daughter evidently being one of, or a couple of them, right? And so Christianity is making an impact in the military, in upper classes of the Christian, of the uh, society. But because of this, this uh, guy who's um, anti-Christian, he, he kind of moves to getting the, the Christian's holy books uh, destroyed along with their places of worship. Um, any Christians in the imperial court were now required to sacrifice to the gods, and, uh, of course, that became uh, a big problem for them, being Christians. They're not going to sacrifice to false gods. And then soon after that, it becomes a general mandate um, to, to basically persecute all Christians throughout the empire. And so that was kind of the largest frontal assault up to this point in, in the Christian church. Now, that's going to lead to uh, what we talk about next week with Constantine coming into power and Constantine kind of creates this this reprieve for for the church, but we'll start that next week. But at this point, we're seeing the first three centuries are basically filled with a lot of persecution, people being killed for their faith, being displaced, losing their sources of income, all kinds of ways, um, and that's what's going on. So, while we're focusing on kind of the negative, we're going to turn now to the positive which is the church growth of the first three centuries. Because um, I think these, are, these things are happening hand in hand. They're, they're happening simultaneously. But just because we can't talk about them simultaneously, we'll, we'll take them kind of one at a time. Um, so in light of all the things that we just saw about the persecution, I think most of us would have a, a conception that, wow, that's a really bad environment to be a Christian, and so who's going to be a Christian in that, right? Like, that's kind of the logical way we would think about this as well. If, if you're going to get killed for being a Christian or lose your job for being a Christian or whatever other consequences there may be, who's going to do that? Who's going to sign up to follow Jesus? Um, but that's not what happens. It's the opposite, actually. The, the church continues to expand and grow and develop and not only in terms of numerical growth of people becoming Christians, but we also see the church begins to organize itself. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on tonight. We see the organization of the church develop. We see the theology of the church begin to develop. And we see the, the size of the church growing and growing. Um, we're we're going to see um, next week with, with uh, Constantine, that the Christian church grows so consistently and organically through these first few hundred years that it actually makes sense politically for the Roman Empire to adopt Christianity uh, after a certain amount of time uh, as the imperial religion. And that, that'll be the focus of, of next, next week. But um, how does the empire, or how does the church rather, in this context of the Roman Empire, get from this small group of people in Palestine and Israel and all this to become this gigantic thing so so big that now the emperor of Rome is like, oh, I should actually side with them because they're, the, they're clearly winning this thing. It's just remarkable to consider that that happened. But it did. It happened. And so 
So we're going we're gonna to look at that. But let's, let's talk about some of the factors that were involved in this. Um, and, and a lot of what I'm going to say comes from a book called The Rise of Christianity by a sociologist named Rodney Stark, who, when he wrote this book, um, I don't know, in the late 90s maybe, um, early 2000s, he, he wasn't a believer. He was a sociology professor, not a Christian, but was just interested in these issues. And he writes this book kind of did, trying to figure out how Christianity grew from this very small marginal group of people in Israel to become the dominant religion within a few hundred years. Same thing that this, this guy for the patient from into the early church f- tries to focus on as well. So basically those two books, Rise of Christianity. Um, so he wasn't a Christian. Rodney Stark at the beginning of his book questions the biblical numbers in the book of Acts and goes, ah, there probably weren't that many people that became Christians. Um, that's obviously not something that is embraced by most, most people. But Rodney Stark today is, as far as I know, a believer. He became a Christian sometime after he wrote this book. Uh, as far as I've I've heard, so um, so that's interesting. I don't know how he would rewrite it if he had to rewrite it. Um, but the the book, outside of some of his skepticism about the biblical data, um, is actually a really good book. It's a really helpful and insightful book if you can kind of gloss over the parts that are a little more skeptical. Um, but in that book, he gives a number of factors for why the church grew over the course of three hundred years. Uh, but one of the ones that was most fascinating to me was, was this idea of how the Christians lived their lives in the Roman Empire, uh, and particularly how they responded to the epidemics that were happening. Uh, remember, during Marcus Aurelius's reign, all of these problems were happening that got blamed on them. But actually, Rodney Stark, at least, would, would say that their response, the Christians' response, to the epidemics that they were being blamed for actually was one of the factors that helped grow the church. So stepping back to 165 during Marcus Aurelius's reign, uh, a devastating epidemic sweeps through the Roman Empire. Some medical historians think it was the first appearance of smallpox. Uh, of course, we don't know that, right, for sure, but that's the guess. Um, whatever the actual disease was, it was lethal at that time. And uh, through the 15 years of that epidemic, think about it, 15 years that this, this disease is just running rampant through the empire, uh, they guess anywhere from a quarter to a third of the population died, including Marcus Aurelius. He died of this potentially smallpox or whatever disease it was, as I said, in, nine, in 180. So that's happening. Okay? The Christians are being blamed for this. And yet what, what Rodney Stark points out is, is that they, the Christians actually saw tremendous growth in the church through this because of a few factors. One was that the Christians had a better answer to suffering than Roman paganism. Roman paganism basically's answer to, to suffering is, well, you made the gods angry. Well, that falls kind of flat when you realize that everyone you know, rich or poor, indiscriminately, are being killed by this, you're kind of like, hmm, a little skeptical that that's the thing. Christians have a better answer for suffering. Our answer for suffering is that we live in a fallen world where sin has entered into it, and we, um, and we are living in a world that is not 
in alignment with God's good design for a perfect world. And yet we also have a God in the midst of that who is active and at work and sovereign over suffering and uses suffering for his greater purposes and and for our good ultimately. So the answer that Christianity can bring to to suffering like an epidemic, like a disease that's running rampant, is, is one reason Rodney Stark believes Christianity started to take hold. Another reason, he points out, is that Christian love and service made the Christians willing to help the sick while pagans fled. And, and those who survived, therefore, were more likely to become Christians, convert to Christianity, because of the care that they received from Christians. This is something that, that absolutely happened. The Christians in, in these cities, unlike their pagan counterparts, didn't all run away for their lives and try to escape. They stayed. They cared for the sick. Now, not, probably not every single one of them, right? They're, people are people everywhere you go. But there were enough people who are going to say, you know what, I, I will risk my own health and safety for the good of my neighbor. And, and that um, comes out in, in this uh, historian, uh, uh, I can't say that guy's name, <laughs> Thucydides, I think. Thucydides. Thucydides. Thank, you're, the, you're the pronunciation guy. Uh, so he explains uh, that the Romans were afraid to visit one another. And as a result, they died with no one to look after them. Indeed, uh, there were many households uh, in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any attention. No fear of God or law of man had a, had a restraining influence. As for the gods, it seemed to be the same thing whether one worshipped them or not when one saw the good and the bad dying indiscriminately. So, so that kind of gets to both the issue of the answer to suffering falls flat because he's, he's pointing out that you're, they're, they're looking around and going, good people and bad people are all dying. So we can't, it can't just be because we made the gods angry. Um, and and the, the general posture of the Romans was, okay, I don't want to die, so I'm going to get out of here and not take care of each other. The Christians, on the other hand, uh, knew and applied the words of Jesus, uh, that to care for the least of these is to care for him. And so... There was an early church leader named Tertullian who claimed uh, that it is, it is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, look at how they love one another. So Tertullian's view is that the, the Christian ethic of caring for people, loving people, being willing to risk their, their safety for the good of others is one of the things that started to turn people's hearts towards the, the Christian church. Now, obviously, there are probably many different factors for why Christianity spread in those first few centuries. Um, but the main factor was that God was growing his church. Right? And so, yes, Rodney Stark points out a number of things, and the, the epidemic one is an interesting one for sure, Um, But at the end of the day, God's growing his church. His church is thriving even in the midst of persecution, in the midst of hardship. Um, The church continues to get get bigger and bigger and bigger uh, and reaches a point where it becomes 
like reasonable for the empire to become or embrace Christianity uh, because of the number of people who, em- who embrace it, which we'll, we'll get into that next week. Um, for the rest of the time here, I, I want to just walk through some of the developments of the early church in these few, first few centuries. So we've been looking at the persecution and the growth, uh, but now let's look at like what's being developed during these first 300 years. And there's three things, primarily. Uh, canon, creeds, and church leadership. So um, in addition to all this church growth and all this persecution, in addition to that, these, these things are what's developing. Canon, creeds, and church leadership. So let's, let's look at each of those and define those. Um, the word canon is not like the weapon you shoot off a pirate ship in this case. It's uh, derived from a Greek word for rod or ruler that was used for measuring objects. So when we use the word canon, we're, we're talking about uh, the books of the Bible that we consider scripture because they fall under the standard or norm of, of what are, are biblical books or what the New Testament. So, so when you talk about the canon, we're talking about how does the New Testament become a thing? Um, we need to remember that by the, by the time of Jesus, the Old Testament had been long established, kind of set in, in its form. Um, there had been some variations of the Old Testament, you know, over the years. But for the most part, the Old Testament we have is the same Old Testament that Jesus had. Um, and so, but the New Testament was a little bit of a different story. The New Testament was um, being written during the, the kind of the time frame of the book of Acts, uh, with the Apostle Paul being the guy who wrote, you know, 13 of the books of the New Testament, um, and the apostles and, or pe- people who are very close to the apostles writing uh, the remainder of it. So Peter, John, Paul would be the, the three big, big authors of the book of Acts, uh, excuse me, of the, of the New Testament, and the book of Acts and Luke are written by Luke, and there's a few other, other people. But how did all of those collections of letters that were written by Paul and Peter and John, how did all of these come to be the New Testament? Well, that's what was happening during the first 300 years. Um, if the church was going to be unified and mature, it would need to have a universal set of New Testament writings, what we would call the, the canon of Scripture, or the Bible today, as you combine it with the Old Testament. Um, and, and they needed to have a set of writings that the whole church across the, across the global empire of Rome could believe in and submit to. And, and that was not as uh, cut and dry as we might think. It, it was actually a pretty lengthy process of fine-tuning um, and now Ed, this is kind of a complicated subject and you can dig way deeper into it. There's a great book. It's written relatively recently by Michael Kruger called, um, uh, Canon Revisited. And, and there I've, I've gleaned a lot from him in what I'm going to say tonight, but, uh, that book will, will take you much deeper than I can tonight. But the idea here is that in different parts of the empire, different parts of the church, embraced some different books of the New Testament. They embraced some of the same. There was definitely overlap. But there were some portions of the church that were like, well, James and Hebrews doesn't count. And other parts were like, no, James and Hebrews do count. And there were some arguments over certain books. Um, But overall, 
Um, and over time, the books of our New Testament become the finished canon of Scripture. And, and the way they went about that, according to Michael Kruger, and this is, I just kind of pulled this from him, is that there, are, there were some key factors that these books had to be uh, brought through or considered against to see if they were canonical or not. The first is divine qualities. Did these books align with what we know of God through the rest of Scripture? Uh, do, do we read them and go, yeah, God wrote these books. Like God's spirit inspired the writing of these books. And of course, you, we know, we read the New Testament and we go, absolutely, God is working in these books. These are not just random things, right? And so the early Christians were trying to discern that stuff. And particularly because there were all kinds of wackos out there writing counterfeit books of the Bible. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas uh, which basically says that women have to become men to be saved. And there's some wacko stuff that was written during this time period that the, the Christians in that time had to, had to discern and go, okay, what's in, what's out? Um, because Thomas clearly didn't write this book, even though it's got his name on it. And so let's, let's think about this. And one of the factors they had to use was divine qualities. Is this something that actually aligns with what God teaches the second thing was apostolic writings, things that were directly connected to an apostle of Jesus Christ or someone very adjacent to him. So we have the example of Mark. Okay, Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. Luke, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. And neither of those guys were apostles, but they were both very connected to the apostles. Mark was one of Peter's dearest friends. We know that from the scriptures. And so it is likely that the Gospel of Mark, though written by Mark, was actually through Peter's words or through Peter's instruction about Jesus. And so Peter's the eyewitness, Mark's writing it down, and his name gets attached to it. Um, Luke is, is a, a doctor and kind of pseudo-historian who's going around interviewing all the apostles and, and getting first-hand accounts, and he's writing the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And so... But, but are these books written by someone who is connected to an apostle or is an apostle of Jesus? So that's that the second criteria. Third criteria is community reception, meaning did the whole church accept these writings? And, and if there was a point where some parts of the church didn't accept it and others did, there would be discussion and debate about that. But it, over time... Uh, they fine-tuned that thing, and the New Testament uh, became what it is. And um, the reason it took time was because there was some discussion over what books were apostolic and which books were received by the community and all that. So, so that happens over the course of the first few hundred years. Um, another development of the early church were creeds. And uh, this was another means that stabilized a developing church. Creeds, if you're not familiar with that word, are statements of belief and doctrine. Those beliefs and doctrine should be drawn out from scriptural teaching, but they're basically documents that summarize the key teachings and beliefs of the Christian church. Uh, we have today many creeds and confessions and, and from uh, very old ones like the Apostles' Creed, to the Council of, uh, or the, the um, Nicene Creed and the 
Creed of Chalcedon, and we'll talk about those two in, in future classes. But in the early, in the early centuries, um, there was really only a couple of creeds that were starting to be formed. Uh, one was called, well, one was from Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, he wrote a creed. Um, uh, he was a bishop in Antioch. And then that was in about 110, he wrote a statement. And the other uh, creed in that early time, which is a little past 300, but uh, the old Roman creed is what it's known as, which that ends up becoming the Apostles' Creed. But the Apostles' Creed was formalized or finalized in the 700s. So the old Roman creed is very similar to the Apostles' Creed. But let me just read these for you to give you a sense of what they are. So Ignatius of Antioch, here's his his creedal confession. He says, turn a deaf ear to any speaker who avoids mention of Jesus Christ. That's good advice. Somebody avoids Jesus, don't listen to him. Um, who, was of, who was of David's line, born of Mary, who was truly born, ate and drank, was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate, truly crucified and died while those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth beheld it, who also was truly raised from the dead, the Father having raised him, who in like manner will raise us also who believe in him, his Father. I say, will raise um, us in Christ Jesus, apart from whom we have not true life. I mean, I, I don't know if anybody can today would read that and go, oh, I disagree with that. Like, that's, that's not Bible, but it's formalizing and, and kind of creating a statement that's based off Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Um, and so that was very early. That was 110 AD is when that one was written. The old Roman creed in the early 300s is, if you're familiar with the, the Apostles' Creed, will sound sim similar to it. It says, I believe in God Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was buried, and the third day was raised from the dead who ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, whence he comes to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, and the life everlasting. That's very similar to, to what we now know as the Apostles' Creed, and that's because the Apostles' Creed was kind of built off of this, and there is some different differences in wording and things like that, but, um, but this is where it comes from. So in the early centuries... The church is formulating and thinking through um, how, to, how to basically explain and define Christianity, what it means to be a Christian um, through, these, through these creeds, these, these statements. Okay, so the creeds, canon. And then the third thing here is church leadership. Uh, church leadership is also developing during these early centuries. We actually know from the book of Acts that the, that the early church had organization and structure. We know that uh, elders were being appointed in the churches that Paul was planting. Uh, we know that the apostles in Jerusalem were working to bring about some kind of a structure as the church grew and grew and got bigger and bigger. So they had deacons and they had other, other people that they were sending out and, and uh, helping to care for people. Um, as, as something grows, it does need to be organized. You can't just go completely, uh, completely free on this stuff. So as the church spreads out in terms of size and in terms of distance, what we see happening in the early centuries is 
is that the church is beginning to be organized around regional bishops. Uh, these, these people who were appointed to kind of oversee regions of the church. And they were responsible for teaching and protecting the churches in their region from error. And so you have guys like Ignatius of Antioch. Well, he's the bishop in the church, for the churches in Antioch. Um, and his role is to teach and to protect those churches. And so that's one of the things that's happening is you're starting to see a, a development of church structure in the early centuries. Um, so in, just to give you one example here uh, of how the bishops were, were working, this comes from the Patient Ferment of the Early Church book. I thought this was fascinating. But in their role of protecting the church, we need to remember in that context, there, there is a, a ton of persecution happening, right? And so Christians generally don't worship in public open ways the way we do. They didn't have a big sign that said Springbrook Church on the side of the building and 10 a.m. and anybody can come in the door. Instead, if somebody was going to join the local church, they had to have a sponsor from within the church to basically vouch for them and say they're sincere, they're a genuine person, they want to, they want to learn about Jesus. And then they had to be interviewed by the bishop before they were allowed into the worship service. Uh, and this was a, a safety procedure. It was a safety procedure because they were afraid that spies from the Roman Empire would be coming in and trying to take names and, and harm Christians. They were already being harmed. And so they didn't want to have people infiltrating the community even more. And so this, this idea of having this sponsor who is like, so you meet somebody at work and you're like, and they're talking to them about Jesus and they're like, oh, I want to meet Jesus. I want to get involved in the church. And they're like, okay, well, I've got to like talk to the bishop and vouch for you. And then he's got to talk to you. And it was like a process. And it's kind of, kind of foreign to our, our minds today, but that's because we live in a very privileged time of religious liberty and freedom. And we should be grateful for that. Um, but this is, this is how they had to do it. And that was part of the bishop's role um, in, in the area, was to kind of vet the people who were potentially wanting to join the church. Um, the, other, the other aspect of this development is to see the change moving out of Judaism into its own form of leadership. So historians pretty much all agree that the organization of the early church grew out of its Jewish roots, where synagogues were kind of local expressions of the Jewish uh, people in that community, and they were led by elders. Sometimes they were called presidents. Um, but Episcopal organization, and Episcopal is a, maybe a scary word to some of you. It just means it's led by a bishop, and, and it kind of has a hierarchy of leadership, that, that organization represents a move away from Judaism. So Mark Knoll, in his, in his book, Turning Points, uh, says that precise assessment of what the rise of the episcopacy, or that bishop system, meant for the church remains in dispute. But what's not in dispute is that the system of bishops that arose in the early church became the means for moderating its internal life and organizing its response to the world. As such, the episcopacy was one of the vehicles through which the pattern of the synagogue were exchanged for the church's own method of organization. So the, the episcopal system that was developed in the early centuries was kind of a move away from Judaism into its own 
world. And part of that was because of the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem is no longer the center of, of what's happening in, in the church after the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, so obviously today, uh, there are a variety of ways churches are organized and led. Uh, some are still under bishops. Here's a few denominational examples. Roman Catholicism is an Episcopal church. Uh, Anglicans, or Episcopals as we call them in the United States, uh, that, that tells you something. Uh, Methodists have bishops oftentimes. Uh, and the Amish are, are a bishop-led uh, group of Christians as well. So um, other churches, though, as time has gone on, there's, been come, there's become different forms of church government. And so you have some that are led by elders, what we'd call the Presbyterians. Um, and then you have others that are congregational or some combination of elder and congregational leadership. So obviously in time, over the course of 2,000 years, things have changed. We're not all the same, um, but there are still some that would hold to the Episcopal form of government today. All right, real quick, let's just talk through three things that we can learn uh, just as we apply this stuff to our, to our life. We've just gone through a whole bunch of things, um, but here's a few things to think about. One is early Christianity shows us God's faithfulness to grow the church. It, it shows us that God is faithful to grow his church and continue to grow his church. And so I think we need, to, we need to hold on to this truth that no matter how dark the world may seem, um, it's not as dark as it was at one point in time. And the church thrived in, in that darkness. And God is faithful to grow his church and he will continue to be. That's one thing I think we can be encouraged by in this. Um, secondly, early Christianity reminds us that we are not the first group of Christians to suffer or have difficulty. I think a lot of us tend to catastrophize things and maybe even have a martyr complex. And, and it's, almost, it's almost like laughable that we, that we act like we're martyrs. Um, so let's not be so dramatic, okay? Um, let's, let's learn from what our ancestors had to go through and how they thrived in a world that was so chaotic. And, and we can implement many of those same things. Of course, we see that in biblical stories too. We see that in the story of Daniel. We see that in the story of the Old Testament people in exile. We see that in the book of Acts. Uh, but we can even look further beyond that to, to those who lived in the Roman Empire and see the same. And then one last thing to look at today is just that early Christianity helps us appreciate God's faithfulness to preserve his word and sound theology. And the fact that you and I have, well, I don't have the Bible in here. Um, I thought I, there was one Christmas to take, taking, it out, taking it out. But um, we have our Bibles like in a nifty printed form. And it wasn't always like that. Uh, we, we can just, we can go onto our phones and just tap it with one or two taps and get onto the Bible. Um, but the fact that we have a Bible, the fact that we have the scriptures that we can just access so easily and so pervasively in our, in our day is, is because God faithfully worked through the people in the early centuries to bring his word to fruition, to, to discern through his leading and guiding which books are biblical books, to put those together and, and to give us um, some, some basic theological understanding of how we understand Christ and his work. And all of that begins to develop and continues to develop. We will see the continuation of this in 
in the next weeks as well. But, but even just now, we can, we can be grateful to God for the Bible and, and that he, even in the midst of just awful circumstances, kept his word uh, secure and preserved it and continues to preserve it to this day. So there's that. That's what I've got for today. Next week, we'll look at part two, which is the imperial church, moving from the persecuted church to an imperial church and what what that all means. So that's where we'll go next week. But uh, with that, I'll pray for us. And then um, you guys are dismissed. If you have questions, we can talk afterwards and we'll go from there. Uh, So Jesus, we thank you for uh, giving us uh, just this time to be together, to think about some things that maybe are not uh, the most central, but are, are, are something that we uh, can chew on and consider and, and apply to our lives as we uh, assess them according to your word. And so we pray you would help us to do that and that you would give us your grace tonight as we travel home. And we, uh, we thank you for what you've done and that you'd bring us back safely together on Sunday, if that be your will, and uh, that we would worship you this week and enjoy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.